you can't have empathy unless you're having a dialogue with someone and sometimes having a dialogue with someone who's slightly at odds with you. You can't have a relationship with anyone if you cannot tolerate the difference. I mean, we're all not the same. We all don't feel the same, even if we have the same politics, the same goals. Welcome to the December 6th, 2018 edition of the Hyperallergic Weekly Podcast, Art Movements. This week, we're doing something I love, which is turning the microphone over to people who I deeply respect and letting them have a conversation they feel is essential. Last year, I invited artist, writer, and Queens College professor, Chloe Bass, to talk with Lowry Stokes Sims, a giant in the field of museums and art history to engage in a conversation of their choosing. Bass, of course, is no stranger to hyperallergic readers, since her writing has graced their screens for years now, most recently during her review of the Adrian Piper retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art, when she wrote, Piper's ways of connecting the conceptual and the personal, along with the coexistence of image, language, and experience in her work, situate participation as a kind of training grounds for the world. What if we accepted the provocations introduced by art as real strategies for changing our behavior or relationships? That phrase, in some ways, also describes her own work, or at least some of its concerns, a deep engagement coupled with conceptual underpinnings and emotional nuance. Then there's Lowry Stokes Sims, a truly singular figure, She was on the education and curatorial staff at the Metropolitan Museum of Art from 1972 to 1999, during which time she specialized in exhibiting and writing about modern and contemporary art, with a particular focus on African, Latino, Native, and Asian American artists. She's published extensively on many figures, including surrealist artist Wilfredo Lamb, And in 1997, she organized a survey of the work of Richard Pousset Dart at the Metropolitan. But that was only one of countless exhibitions she was involved with. Then, from 2000 to 2007, she was executive director, then president of the Studio Museum in Harlem, and served as adjunct curator for the permanent collection. Then, from 2007 until 2015, she was at the Museum of Arts and Design, also in Manhattan. Her final exhibition there, as chief curator, was titled New Territories. It was an exhibition of Latin American design, art, and craft. And I have to say I love that title because it capsulizes the fact that she was always breaking new ground at every turn. I think you'll agree the conversation offers useful insight into the worlds of two fascinating art figures who continue to innovate and challenge us at every chance they get. One of the things that I really want to talk to you about is CUNY, Mm -hmm. and specifically your time at Queens College, but also your involvement with the CUNY system in general. And so even just reminiscing for a moment would actually be fantastic. I was thinking about it this morning because when I was growing up, you know, my mother had gone to Brooklyn College in the 40s. So she is a practically native New Yorker. Her whole thing was like, we're not wealthy. We can't put you all through, you know, Ivy League schools. You have to have 
your grades up so that you can qualify for anything in the CUNY system because at that time you did have to have something like an 86 average or something like that. This is before open admissions. So I was the only one who actually <laughs> took her up on it because they did, in their kind of sexist way, pay for my brother to go to Hamilton. And my sister became a ballet dancer. So college sort of passed her by, except for her own self-teaching. So I'm trying to remember, but something sticks in my mind. When I entered Queens College in 1966, there were something like 14,000 matriculated day students, and 20 were Black. And, you know, for me, this was... It was no big deal because I'd gone to white schools, predominantly white schools, all my my life. But having gone to Catholic schools did require a little bit of adjustment to the culture because I remember in one of the first classes I was in, I think it was an English class, when the teacher walked in, um, one other student and I stood up because that's what you did at Catholic school. And the rest of us, the rest of the class looked at us like we had lost our minds, you know. So I was looking it up this morning because very soon we had a larger population of Black and Latino students come in through the SEEK program. So by my sophomore year, the whole complexion was, was changing. It was, it was terrific. And I remember myself that probably end of my sophomore year or my junior year, I got a job tutoring students in the SEEK program. And, you know, this was supposed to be for disadvantaged students to get in to sort of have, you know, like an impact. And I I was looking at the statistics and it's like almost 400,000 students, I think, have come through the system, through the SEEK program. But, you know, tell you the truth, they all weren't all that downtrodden or ignorant. It was just a way to sort of get into the school. So, you know, I had an interesting cohort of people that really expanded my social life and I also would sit in on courses, so that's how I got to learn about Black literature. When I was tutoring art, to make it relevant to the Black students, we had to sort of teach African art, so I taught myself about African art. So the whole, you know, like, CUNY experience for me was this rich, you know, variety of sort of wealthy, affluent, largely Jewish community of students the Sikh students, you know, coming in and these teachers that were just absolutely fantastic. You know, they sort of really transferred and transformed my worldview even more than it had been and sort of really gave me the best grounding I could have. I mean, because when I went to Johns Hopkins for my master's, I was eons ahead in terms of sophistication, knowledge about art history and things. And so when it came time to do my doctorate work, I went back to CUNY. So I have, yeah, a similar story about my own education, which is that I went to a CUNY school from pre-K through 12th grade, right? I went to Hunter. And so I didn't actually know as a child or as a young adult that that was a special type of situation because I had been there as long as I had been in school. It was my only knowledge of school. And then from Hunter, I went to Yale. And as a Hunter student, as a Hunter alum, I found that I was miles ahead at Yale, which is kind of insane. And the ways in which I was miles ahead was not necessarily in terms of like worldly experience, because I didn't have a ton of worldly experience, but it was in terms of actually ways of thinking about the world, right? And ways of engaging with the world and kind of being 
in a situation where when we understand that our education is public, I think we also understand that it's for a series of publics, right? And that our education is part of our responsibility to ourselves, but also to other people. And what I was realizing at the time, although I couldn't put it into words as an 18, 19, 20, 21 year old, was that if for the people who were coming from private schools to you know, the privatiest school, right? Ivy League schools are the privatiest schools in the world. Mm -hmm. Their understanding of education was only for themselves and their own continued success. So their way of engaging is relatively myopic, right? You see, okay, I'm going ahead, I'm hitting this milestone, I'm hitting that milestone, I'm doing great, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Whereas if you come from a more public situation, you understand that the conversations that are happening around you, not necessarily the subject matter itself, is the single most important thing about being part of a group and learning. I can stay home and read a book, right? Exactly. I love to stay home and read a book. That is an important part of my life. I love to be in my studio alone making art. But either way, that sort of material that comes out of being alone is something that I use to engage with mm -hmm. more people in the world. Mm -hmm. And it can't be something that kind of um, stops at the door. Yeah, I think that is really, you know, very true. I mean, when you say that, I can sort of basically see that it w would have been very different if I had gone to Marymount College for Women, which is what the nuns wanted me to do. And I think that uh, now, I, you know, I am significantly older than you, so I'm coming up in the 60s and the early 70s where, you know, we're all caught up in the turmoil of, you know, the social engagement of the times. You know, we had Berkeley in the news, and I remember, you know, all these stories about how Berkeley was now requiring you to put a, a picture in your, your application so they could check you out beforehand so to see if you're going to be a troublemaker. So when I was at Queens, I could dip into the women's, women's organization, I could dip into the SDS, and I could dip into the Black Student Union, which we started, our group started. And, you know, I'm, probably our most famous alum is uh, Felipe Luciano, who at the time was Philip Luciano. And then he dropped out of school, and next thing I know, he's, you know, holed up in a church in East Harlem, <laughs> demanding, <laughs> you know, the, you know the, the rights for the neighborhood to be cleaned up and, you know, things like that. So... For me, it was like an interesting experience because I began to sort of see just how the world operated according to different sectors. So whatever I was, you know, experiencing with the women's group was mutually exclusive to what I was experiencing in the black students' unit because there the males dominated and we were supposed to, you know, the, the, the mantra is that women should be prone for the revolution or something like that. So <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, fine. So <laughs> there's no way to record my face right now. <laughs> well, this, this is the way, you know, like it was. And I, and I remember in the midst of all this craziness, I get the improbable news that I've been elected to Phi Beta Kappa. I did nothing about this. One of my professors, you know, must have nominated me. And I remember my mother was like, she says, oh, wait till you tell all your friends. And I said, I'm not going to say one thing because I knew that that was going to alter my relationship with a whole bunch of people I knew, particularly black males. 
And then the damn school newspaper published all our names so that it was over. So then I had to confront something that I've confronted all my life until I finally said to someone, I'm 50 years old. When can I enjoy my achievements without somebody telling me, don't get up there too far. No man is going to want you, you know? And so I finally said, I'm 50. I'm barren. I have no children. Why can't I enjoy, you know, like the fruits of my thing? So I had to realize that I had to find like spirits, you know, who I could sort of move through the world with. And also, I was ready for all the sort of assistitudes that could have been thrown at me, you know, when I got out into the the public world. And it was interesting because right after I graduated in 1970, so there's, there's that change from the 60s where you had 66, you had the, the, the Feminine Mystique was published. The uh, Panthers were, you know, in full bloom. Um, we went through all the assassinations, Martin Luther King, John F. Kennedy, Robbie Kennedy, Malcolm X, you know, so that your whole view of what the society could tolerate and how you, you maneuver through it was upmost in your mind. Angela Davis being, you know, arrested. So you realize as a woman, there was like no protection for you if you were, you know, a kind of a black woman. And ironically, it was my father who sort of really gave me the smarts. He, he would just sort of do this kind of Socratian, you know, like system of bringing me through the questions. Okay, you're in this job. You think that somebody is doing something to you because you're black or you're a woman. What are they doing to the white guy working next to you? And he helped me see that, the, you know, the dynamics and the, of the power structure were across the board. It's just that people had different perceptions of their place within that. Yeah, it's interesting. And so my dad was actually SDS at Brandeis. Um, and we had dinner on Saturday night. And I'm doing a project um, in collaboration with Naeem Mohaiman right now about Kent State. And so I'm really focusing a lot on specifically this time period. This is a project that's going to happen. And I want to go back to what you said about how your involvement with the women's movement, the black movement, and SDS, you were hearing things that were really at odds with one another. Because what I've been thinking about, particularly recently, in the context of my classroom, but also in the context of larger art audiences, is that one thing that seems really impossible right now is the understanding that intelligence is the ability to actually hold two conflicting thoughts in your mind at the same time, right? And kind of actually grapple with that and deal with that. And I would consider that to be one of the first major forms of understanding, right? Mm. The ability to hold those two thoughts in your head at the same time. If you can't do it, how could you ever really understand what it is to compromise? And if you can't really understand compromise, like how can you ever really love? But right now, it seems like instead what we're facing is the idea that empathy does that, right? That empathy is the primary form of relation, the primary sort of mechanism of love, and therefore like the primary motivator of politics. And that if we would just fix the empathy problem, everything would be solved. But I don't think people understand that empathy is an intellectual process. You can't have empathy unless you're having a dialogue with someone and sometimes having a dialogue with someone who's slightly at odds with you. You can't have a relationship with anyone if you cannot tolerate the difference. I mean, we're all not the same. We all don't feel the same, even if we have the same politics, the same goals. 
And one of the things, you know, I realized is that at the time when I was in Queens was that the SDS, the Women's Movement, and the Black Students Union, we were all about the same thing. We were about, you know, some kind of breaking away of freedom from the usual Eurocentric bourgeois values that we had all grown up with. And, you know, like growing up in Queens, sort of in the suburbs, what was then the suburbs, really sort of puts you at the sort of mega center of that kind of post-World War II ethos of what it was to be the good life, the American dream. And, you know, what you realize is that everything just starts to break down to like everybody's individual thing. Because on top of all this, you know, I had grown up in my neighborhood where the black people from the West Indies looked down on the black people from the South because, after all, they grew up under a British system or French or Dutch or whatever. And we were just like, you know, descendants of these, you know, ignorant slaves, you know, like in the South. They had no sense of what the black American experience was uh, in terms of, you know, like accomplishments in, in freedom and education and things. So they looked down on blacks from the South, except our family, they got very confused because my parents had very high expectations in terms of our personal and academic, you know, like um, uh, goals, you know, in life. And so that was like twisting all that around. And then dealing with my Latino friends, you know, particularly, you know, the Puerto Ricans that I came in with, you know, somebody like Phil who flipped from being black to Puerto Rican. And, you know, it, it took years for me to find a Puerto Rican with whom I could have a talk about race. And that was Marta Vega. And we, Marta is a, a close friend to this day. I met her when I was at the Met working in community programs. And we had initiated this, for all sorts of reasons, the Met had initiated this collaboration with El Museo to do this groundbreaking survey of, of Puerto Rican art. And, you know, like, you know, Martin and I sort of stared at each other for a while. And then we sort of realized there was a kind of slight economic difference that her, you know, like where her parents came from and how she grew up and where I grew up. But, you know, our views and our worldviews as women of color were the same. You know, she spoke Spanish. I didn't. We both were raised Catholics and sort of, you know, moved away from it. And so I think what's missing now with this whole idea of empathy is something that was good that came later out of the 80s when we were all doing this, you know, sort of post-pluralism, multicultural sort of, of, of movements that we were all talking together. It was the African, Native, Asian, uh, I'm leaving somebody else, Latino, <laughs> you know, um, Americans all talking together. So people say, how can you do a project on Latin American art? I said, I sat down and talked with these people you, and you talk to people, you know, it's not about just living the experience. You just talking, you find commonalities and things. And there's much too much siloed experiences now, I think, that young people are feeling. So I don't know how they're going to get the, to the empathy if they're not opening themselves up to a wider experience. Yeah, it's, I come from this very deeply privileged position of being unsiloable. So like so many of the things that you've described as just attitudes that 
you faced in your neighborhood and in the cultures around you growing up in Queens um, are the things that made me literally, right? right? My mother is a black Caribbean immigrant. My father is a Jewish man from Queens. You know, we're dealing with these kind of maybe different economic realities in my family background, but I grew up in like a definitely upper middle class household, you know, very stable. And just thinking about how understanding that even in situations of extreme stability, I had to navigate between these two people, my mother and my father, who are extremely different from one another. Extremely different. And I think that they're both really amazing people. But I also had to understand from a very early age that, again, it's that dialogue that happens between all of this difference, not the kind of eclipsing into sameness that makes this a valuable situation. And when we actually try to be the same is when we begin to kind of break down and just do the normal family thing of, like, bickering. So as a person in that situation, now the idea that I should be pushing towards a certain type of silo in order to be properly political with Mm -hmm. my peers is very, very troubling, Mm -hmm. right? I am deeply pro-black and have been deeply pro-black publicly and privately for a very long time. But as I've been thinking about it recently, I think that actually my understanding of my own Judaism is part of what makes me so pro-black because if we handle this in like an in a nuanced way this is two cultures that have faced mass genocide recently and if you can't sort of see that as related to and inspiring for and kind of hold upable um there are some major concerns that i would have from both sides but i see this too in in art like bringing the conversation back to art that While I understand representation is an incredibly powerful thing and that we can't divorce the art world from the money world, right? And so people have all kinds of feelings about art that I don't think are about art at all. I think they're about capitalism and power, but they say that it's about art because the art is what they see and what they can point to and capitalism and power are invisible and you can't point to them. But we have these siloed ways of viewing that make us very, very resistant to interpretation. And even when we're faced with very representational works of art, which we oftentimes are not, but even when we are, we have this inability to understand that something might be there not for you to necessarily agree with it or relate to it, but to see that your position of difference from it as a viewer is actually really, really valuable for the work. I think that that's that's an interesting observation because I think that... um, you know, trying to navigate this new electronic social media world, you know, because I, you know, I come from the analog. I, you know, often see these images that come at me and I'm going, who who are these being created for? And what are they trying to say? And I think that, you know, the whole dynamics of social media, this kind of very abbreviated, you know, quick take, which the current administration has like mastered, to the point of the nth degree, means that people make these kind of snap judgments about something they think they're seeing, and it has nothing to do with what they are. They don't realize how images may have been manipulated. There's not enough skepticism about images. And so I think that how it translates into art is that people always think that they they understand something that is recognizable. I mean, one of my final moments at the Met was doing a docent tour of an Ellsworth Kelly show. So, 
you know, there we are in 1979 with the docents, you know, even before we were thinking about putting up a 20th century wing. And um, we have all these shapes and corten steel and oil and canvas and different shades of, you know, purples and blues and reds and greens and everything. And they were highly resistant to it. So I took them outside and they had a, I think it's a painting by Veronese, you know, hanging at the entrance to the um, European Paintings Department. So I said, all right, look at this painting. Do you know what's going on? And they said, yeah. I said, okay, let's run through this. Okay. We have a naked woman and a man in armor seated in a kind of park-like setting and a little kid with wings is tying their legs together. If they were doing this in Central Park today, they'd all be arrested for indecent you know, behavior. Who are these people? Do you know who they are? Why are they doing? Why are their legs being tied together? Why, you know? And so they sort of stopped from it. And I said, the way that you are resisting and interrogating Ellsworth Kelly, you better start resisting and interrogating Veronese because this is a painting that was made for a specific patron using symbols that had come down from antiquity into the Renaissance. And they have, you know, like a specific meaning in a specific context, which may be even different from what they had, you know, in antiquity. So that's sort of been the kind of mantra, you know, like I have about art. And, you know, particularly as you're saying, you know, this kind of focus on figuration has been something that has been almost epidemic, you know, like among black artists, because it started in the 19th century with this kind of attempt to recuperate positive imagery out of stereotypical, you know, vicious stereotypical imagery. But it's also in a way kind of trapped us, I think. And I think it's trapped us because even in this moment in the art world, where it's it's probably the most profitable, the most accepting, the most anticipatory in terms of Black artists and what they do, I think Black artists are still being maneuvered into a specific kind of figural, you know, community. And then if you're a Black abstract artist, you still have a long, long haul to be accepted both by the Black community and the white community in terms of being valid in, with these kinds of misguided notions of what identity is about. Well, we think of identity somehow, again, as fundamentally fixed rather than abstracted in and of itself, right? So if you're going to be, okay, A, I identify as an artist, B, I identify as black, C, I'm putting those two things together, I'm a black artist, the more tags we add, okay, maybe I'm like a black gay artist, right? I'm a black gay artist with, you know, neuroatypicality, right? I can just keep adding labels, but the more and more that we add, the more and more we feel like that brings us towards a point of specificity Mm -hmm. rather than towards increased abstraction that's actually layered and nuanced and really, really interesting. Um, And I personally, this is just me, right? But I think of abstract thinking as a form of public intimacy. And even, you know, I commuted this morning at a rush hour time, which is something that in my life I almost never do. I teach at weird hours of the day and I can't really handle rush hour trains. And in my commuting, I was transferring from the G train to the L train to get here, right? It's, yes, your face is the right face to make. Um, And there were, you know, disproportionately, like, business-type-looking people on the train. 
And you can imagine that however you want to imagine it. But it looked like people really going to like office work um, based on their clothing primarily and also based on their accessories. So like a lot of white earbuds. And I was trying to get on the train and there was this wall of people who were just like, look, you can't get on the train. And I was thinking, okay, I can't get on the train because it's full. I go to another door, I get on the train. One stop later, I get off the L train to come here. At Bedford Avenue, it's like, oh, you can get off the train because this wall of more business people are coming to hem you in from the other side and they're not gonna let you off the train. And there's a moment where I'm like, I want to kill everybody, (laughs) right? Like realistically, I just wanna burn this whole situation down. But then when you step back from that immediate reaction, there's this way in which you can say to yourself, I, as a black, mixed race, also Jewish woman in New York, have a body that's subject to a lot of interpretation. And I can actually offer that to other people. Since I'm so used to my body being interpreted and abstracted and used as a symbol, right? Why don't I offer this to this other people? They're very stressed out about work. They do not see themselves as an angry army. They only think of themselves as individual bodies, right? In that sense, there's no such thing as everybody else. There's this woman with the coffee and that woman with the coffee and the earbuds and the business. And the. And my inability to kind of get through that is not a product of who I am, but kind of the larger inability for us to separate ourselves out and see that the ways that our actions actually have an impact on other individual people. Um, We think about ourselves as individual motivators, but not kind of the results having an individual one-to-one impact. No, I think that I think that's true. I mean, you know, the way that people move in the streets now, you just sit there and go, really, can you just move out of the way? Or, you know, the most dangerous, you know, like you're, you're, you're coming out of the train with a suitcase and somebody just comes off the escalator either going down and just stands there and you, you just sort of see like the danger I mean it's dangerous you know like to, to a certain extent because there's no sense of how they move in space in relationship to other people and I think that um, you know having taken subways longer than you and sort of seen the growth of it and you know maybe because I'm taller and bigger than you <laughs> I just like woof you know if I have to sort of, you know, you become inured, you know, to like this whole sense, like there's going to be this civilized sort of parting of the ways to make a space for you. So you have to sort of sometimes maneuver around to it. But it's really about people not being conscious of how they exist in the world. And I think it's because New York is increasingly more people. It's almost like a stance that they are trying to sort of preserve their hegemony by sort of just taking a stance and sort of like, they're not going to move, you know, because to move is to express some kind of weakness or some kind of way that they are not empowered, you know, and it it means nothing. You just, you know, just move out of the way and make some room for somebody. It's about community. It's about empathy, getting back to what you're talking. Well, but this is the art world too, right? right? So I brought up the communing example as a form of public intimacy because this relates to the way that I make artwork. All my artwork is about scales of public intimacy. Um, but the art world, it's, you know, what you just said, like New York has increasingly more people and not moving is seen as a form of empowerment. And I think that's exactly what's happening, both with artists and arts institutions and probably art market, which I barely understand, you know, but that this idea of not moving from your position is the way that you maintain your power, even as there are more and more, and I think a greater diversity of people participating in this world. 
And I kind of want to address that going back to the sense of publics and CUNY as a public and how we understand publics to talk about museums as public institutions and how these positions of sort of like people not moving within them or the institution serving as a person and not moving affects the way that we're actually training people to understand, look at, and value art. And I mean that not in a money way. Well, it's interesting because having worked in museums for over 40 years, um, you kind of forget that they're sort of like sort of colonial collecting. You know, like they may um, sort of have vaunted missions about, you know, the public education. But what was the public education was about? The public education was about assimilating poor working people into the values of the middle class and sort of giving them a place where they can sort of aspire to something because they could look upon objects that they could then (laughs) buy sort of reproductions of in a department store and sort of create a kind of surrogate at a lower price point. Um, you know, in their own homes. And it was interesting to me to read something, and I can't remember where, about someone who worked in the museum who essentially just left because they realized they could not get away from the implications of that colonial aspect of museums, the imperialistic aspects of museums and how they try to control dialogues about different communities. I mean, you know, how many museums, encyclopedic museums, have curators from the cultures that they're dealing with, dealing with the material? Very few. I mean, I find it appalling, not that I think that I'm sort of like, you know, the keeper of, you know, sort of like the black aesthetic in art, but the fact that the the Metropolitan Museum is now about 143 years old, and I'm still the first and only African-American to have been a curator there, and I stayed there for 27 years, says something a little bizarre because there are lots of young African-Americans who are making the financial sacrifice and, you know, sort of going against their parents' financial goals for them to be curators and to become art historians. So it's not like you can't find them anymore. And um, the, the kind of resistance becomes highlighted now because somehow over the last two years, somehow in the wake of people's anxieties about the social phenomenon of the oppression of black people and specifically their relationships with the police department and all the horrible stories that we can just sort of catalog. All of a sudden institutions are into like phase four of the diversity from my, you know, you know, career. And the thing that is really disconcerting is that they're not doing it any differently than from 1970. And It just is, you know, like you sort of realize, getting back to your notion of empathy, is that so few white people know any black people. I mean, on a regular basis, who are their friends, who are their deep friends, who you can have these kinds of conversations with. I have friends from across the the spectrum. And, you know, my white friends, I, you know, I call them on their stuff. They call me on my stuff. And so that we have like a complete understanding of the position from which we are coming and where we can sort of meet and have empathy and have really good friendships that I can sort of depend on. But if you're not, you know, bringing people into your mix, I don't know how you do that. I don't know why I, I have that. Was it the neighborhood I grew up in, you know, where we had like this kind of, you know, extraordinary ethnic mix of people, you know, it was the blacks, the Dominicans, the Puerto Ricans, the Polish the Pakistani, the Mexicans, the, you know, like we all just played together. 
And it wasn't like we were having like sort of exegesis on, you know, cultural politics, but we just had to sort of deal with each other. You know, uh, when we played Cowboys and Indians, I was tied up, you know, on the tree as the captive white girl because there just weren't any other white girls in the Indian. <laughs> so, so the thing is, is, but you know, I mean, we knew this was play acting, you know, but it was like, you know, you know, it, you know, and I knew I wasn't a white girl, but you know, like it was just. We knew that these roles were set up in the Westerns that we watched and we sort of, you know, had to approximate, you know, these kinds of things. So I think that, you know, for any true diversity, you can go into sort of pockets of the art world and you see people of color, despite the fact that they are proliferating all over the place. And so then you have to ask yourself that, you know, because I mean, I've, you know, like sort of lived in ways of anticipation that the situation is going to change. And now at the age of 68 and after 40 plus years in the art world, I'm sort of like, I don't know, I'm done. You know, I don't want to talk about diversity anymore until, you know, you tell me how you're living it out in your life. This is not an abstraction that you do a program for. This is about how you live your life and who you associate with on a regular basis have real knock them down drag about conversations and fight with to sort of understand their positions and have empathy for. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a house where that was happening right. on a daily basis. I don't think that mixed race marriage solves racism. I just want to be very clear about that. Um, I don't. And I think that there is a myth about about mixed race marriage and particularly the production of mixed race children that like somehow that's gonna undo the racism of the world. It's absolute bullshit. But I do wanna say that what happens in a condition where two people are married to one another and live with their child in a house is they do actually have to deal with the fact that they're different. Yes. And come to some level of common understanding in order to stay married with their child. So just, you know, on a practical level. Yes. And I think that if we could approach it maybe more practically if we don't see it as this emotional play on guilt, but mm, rather on mm. something that's just like a practical thing that you do every day in your life, there would be great benefit. You know, I do see this a lot, again, returning to my classroom. So Queens College is now majority minority. I think it has been for some time, but nobody really like announced it until a couple of years ago. Right. My students have never noticed, they do not care. This is not special for them, they're from Queens. They're used to being around people. Like, this is normal. So when I said in my classroom, like, isn't it great that we have a majority-minority campus? Everybody was like, what do you mean? (laughs) You know, and I thought that that was kind of fascinating. Because this thing that institutionally we're taught to celebrate, actually individually and interpersonally, is just like normal Thursday. And that's the world I want. But that's also kind of the world that I want for the understanding of art, too, particularly because it then frees black artists from a lot of the trappings that have been put on us in terms of figuration, but also in terms of how we even get to talk about our work once it's up, what type of show it can be in, and what the role of that work is within the institution in an ongoing way that's out of our control really interesting because I think over the last couple of years I've been able to sort of revisit the careers of several black artists who worked abstractly that I've known for years and you know it was pretty interesting for them to sort of talk about engaging in abstraction as a way to escape the heavy sort of you know polemic points of view of the time you know 
and you hope in this in this escape that there was something there that was also about a personal predilection, and I think pr- finally they probably did, you know, like arrive at that whole kind of thing. But to sort of really talk about it as an escape, because in the seventies, if you did abstract work, you were positioned as a cultural or revised or traitor, you know, because you weren't engaging in, you know, the sort of dogma of the time, you know, you were off in somewhere else. And people didn't have any sense of how it, just how adventuresome and how radical and transgressive abstraction has been historically and still can be, you know. But again, it's it's really about, I think, people being caught up in the fact that they need to see something visually that they immediately recognize and then they then immediately assume they they uh, understand when it's not true. Well, these same students who really have no desire for the institutional celebration of majority minority also mostly hate abstract art, right? These are students in an art classroom, in an art department, and the vast majority of the time, I take them to see shows, not a lot, it's hard to get from the college to oh, sure. anywhere else, yeah. but I take them to see shows and we have a campus museum and you know, the undergraduate students spend time with the graduate students, a lot of whom are making abstract work. Um, and this is important for me that they have these experiences with art. I would say seven students out of 10, if the work is abstract, we're like, I didn't like it. So we have these nuanced understandings of the type of community that they expect, mm-hmm. but not the way that that might play into a certain form of aesthetics. And that I have found, yeah, really, really interesting and something that I want to get beyond, but also want to get beyond in a way that accepts a nuanced position within that and that I'm not just trying to fix. Well, I think that, you know, the more things change, the more things stay the same. I remember teaching a course in SBA in the early 80s and trying, you know, like, you know, being advised by the administration, don't do a straight, you know, chronological thing that's too boring, do it thematically. So by the first semester, everybody was, you know, the end of the first semester, everybody was confused. And so I informed the administration, I'm going back to my survey thing. And one class happened to correspond with um, Marsha Tuckle's controversial Richard Tuttle show at the Whitney Museum, which was driving everybody crazy. So I took them, and I mean, you know, it was totally fascinating. And when we got back the next day, the next time we met, they were just like so totally abusive of me, Richard Tuttle, and Marsha Tucker. And I just said, I've had it. I turned off the projector picked up my things and proceeded to walk out the class. And they came running after me. They, I mean, they couldn't believe. Ms. Sims, where are you going? I said, I'm leaving. I said, I don't need to be here in this classroom. You don't have to like this work, but you have to sort of like really be able to engage it intellectually and figure out why you don't like it and what it means in the context of everything we're talking about. So they pulled me back in. They promised, you know, on Pinky Square that they would do that. But ever so often, if I did anything, in the classroom that they uh, didn't like. They would sort of mimic the uh, little piece of rope that Richard Tuttle had hammered into the (laughs) wall, and they make a gesture about an inch of their fingers about an inch wide going, you know, just, (laughs) and I say, all right, I get it, I get it. What what don't you understand? But at least that was a cue to me that they were ready to have a dialogue, you know, about it. And just to sort of get back to your description of the... um, student body at Queens. When I went back to teach there in 2006, I was 
blown away by, you know, the change in the student population. There were a lot more poor whites. There were a lot more, you know, diversity. I had three Muslim women in my class, and I'm teaching a course on, you know, late 20th century art, and I'm sitting there going, I wonder, can I deal with Carolee Schneeman? Hmm, you know, and, you know, they wrote, you know, and so I, it was, I didn't attempt to take them to the courses, but I would give them assignments to go and experience different works of art in different ways and write about that experience and got really good papers. And, and the Muslim women wrote some of the most perceptive papers that I had. But I had to sort of fight certain kinds of experiential gaps. Like when I was talking about the work of Bruce Nauman, I started talking about the experience of being in front of these neon works and dealing with the buzz. And I realized neon doesn't buzz anymore, you know. And, you know, or, you know, talking, they didn't have a wide selection of, of Wegman uh, works, but they had a work, it was like, was the Man Ray in bed with Mrs. Lubner, you know. And so I said, and who is Mrs. Lubner? And, they saw, and I went, why am I expecting that you would understand a reference to Saturday Night Live circa 1975, you weren't even born yet, you know. And so it was like these kind of interesting ways in which you deal with sometimes these kinds of experiences. And they would have other kinds of terms, like I would do something and they go, oh, that's blah, blah, blah. And they go, what the hell is a blah, blah, blah. They would have a term for it that, you know, I had no experience. So it was an interesting kind of exchange that went back and forth. But you know, it, it it was it was different and sort of more the same at the same time. Um, I had a, a one student who was in a studio class, and she came and she brought me her little ceramics that were certainly in tune with any kind of anime vocabulary that was sort of proliferating in the art world. And she was totally upset because her particular professor was not giving her any truck with that. So that was like interesting to know that, you know, the professors get sort of frozen into their worldview and they don't grow, particularly if they've been there for a long time. And so like the, the, the most challenging thing, I think, for generational interchange is for the older person and the younger person to sort of start to have that kind of dialogue, you know, with each other. So it's, I guess it's always about a cross dialogue, whether it's age, gender, race or anything else, sexual preference, uh, nationality, you know, not having the ability to sort of have that kind of cross dialogue, getting back to empathy, um, is really the problem that we have. I don't ultimately find you and I that different. Um, in a lot of really interesting ways that I couldn't have researched, mm -hmm. right? Like I can do plenty of research on you and you can do sort of limited research on me based on our different positions in the world. But both the other time that we met and today, right. what I'm struck by is kind of how easy it is to not just be with you as a person, you're a very nice person, but kind of for our minds to engage each other, exactly. right? And that I think is what is required of those types of conversations that you yes. describe, not just that two people come together and spend the time and okay, we spent the time and it's over, which I think of as almost like a form of volunteering, Right, like I can send my students to a, a senior citizen's home, and I, I did actually last semester. They sort of sent themselves. They had to do a community-engaged project, and ultimately the most responsive community partner 
was the senior citizen's home. So they went there. Um, And they had a good time. But it was really about, like, what they gave to the senior citizens. And then they were done. And then they wrote about their project. And they did a presentation about that. And I think that that act of giving is lovely. I am not knocking that work. It's hard work to give. But I think also kind of understanding that people can engage each other mutually. Mm-hmm. And this is where a lot of, you know, social practice, socially engaged art also falls apart. Yes. Is it's kind of like just given to somebody and that's it. As if the gift that you're offering is the way that people want to be loved. Mm-hmm. Like we get it wrong all the time in terms of love. We always are trying to love people in ways that they don't want to be loved. And we don't do it out of malice. But if that's how we behave in our lives, like certainly as artists, we're probably even more guilty of that because artists are jerks. Um, And we have these ideas and we want to stick with those ideas above all else. And I have had to work really hard to counteract my sense of my work as a gift, but rather as a form of kind of ongoing engagement that will have fundamental challenges and that never really finishes even after the show has been presented. And understanding that as a form of kind of how we build the world better seems fundamental to me, but also very difficult to achieve. I think we could have a whole other conversation on social practice and the dynamics thereof, uh, because certainly, you know, in my work with African and Latin American design in particular, you see egregious examples, you know, like, or even being on, you know, certain kinds of, you know, grant committees, you know, like every, you see these egregious examples of this kind of, it amounts to exploitation of these communities and exotic climes where, you know, artists can get their bona fides as moving out of the nexus of the Euro-American context and sort of come back with something equally exotic in terms of a product. But what happened to the community that they left behind? So the exploitations of social practice could be a whole other conversation, and maybe we should think about that for later. Well, and I think what this brings up for me also, and this is another tricky conversation, is also particularly because I don't actually think that curators are a privileged class, right? I think that people perceive that curators are a privileged class in the same way that people who aren't artists perceive that artists are a privileged class. Like sometimes this is true, sometimes it isn't. We need to just understand these things with more subtlety. But there is also a way in which the curator can do to the artist or the work of an artist what you described that the artist can do to the community. And they take the work and they're celebrated for going to these exotic climbs and the artist, the actual person, has been completely exploited and left behind. I agree. (laughs) Maybe that's it. Maybe that's where we are today. I think we should have several conversations. I would absolutely love that. I want to give a special thanks to Sun Sun for providing the music for this week's episode. I'm Hadag Bhaktanyan, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.